This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer, teacher, author, and owner of the drum store Columbus Percussion, Jim Rupp. Jim has done extensive touring with the bands of Woody Herman, Manard Ferguson, and Glenn Miller. He spent close to 10 years with Grammy Award winning jazz singer Diane Shore and has also performed and toured with artists such as Ray Charles, Tony Bennett, Joe Lovano, Hank Marr, Clark Terry, Rosemary Clooney, John Fedchok, Natalie Cole, the Cleveland and Columbus Jazz Orchestras, and many others. As a teacher, Jim holds a current appointment at The Ohio State University and is also the co-author of an acclaimed drum set method book, Baby Steps to Giant Steps. Jim is active and held leadership positions in the Progressive Arts Society, as well as the National Association of Music Merchants. Jim is the founder and owner of Columbus Percussion, one of the country's largest and most respected percussion specialty stores. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. As we often mention, leaving a rating and review on iTunes really helps us grow. I'd like to provide some feedback from a listener who left a review on iTunes. Jeff Ziegler writes, I play drums in my basement for my own entertainment, and so I am not trying to develop a professional career, but I find Working Drummer to be an entertaining, informative, and funny look at the music industry. It's cool to learn about the work and life of professional drummers and get insight into some of my favorite artists. Keep up the great work. Jeff, thanks so much for that. Um, Again, Leaving a rating and review really helps us grow, and we're happy to share these reviews. If you're able to provide uh, a review for us, we're happy to read that here. So, Jeff, thanks so much for that. If you use the hashtag WorkingDrummer, we'll include you on Instagram and our stories. If you want to support what Zach and I are doing here at the Working Drummer Podcast, there's a couple ways that you can do that. On the homepage of our website, WorkingDrummer.net, you can find a button for PayPal, There's also a button that is a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is an easy and convenient way to support the podcast on a regular basis. Donations start at a dollar and you have access to the bonus material that we're providing on a monthly basis from past guests. As always, any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. So here we go, my conversation with the one and only Jim Rupp. During the school year, I, I do a long day at Ohio State. I do one long day, teach there. Um, in the summer, obviously, that that doesn't happen. Other than that, no, I don't know that it's it's typical. If it's a week where I've got the Cleveland Jazz Orchestra or I do the Cleveland Pops Orchestra, then I'm I've usually got a night of rehearsal, then you know another night or two of concerts for that. Um, for either one of those. And then there's a lot of freelance work that, you know, fills in. So I'm probably between rehearsal and gigs, usually three, sometimes four or or more nights a week. Okay. Doing something. Yeah. Yeah. And balancing that with, with the shop itself. Yeah. And that's always a tap dance. I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've got a great crew of guys here who I can, you know, if you hire good people, you try and stay out of their way. 
Um, and that's always been my thing. You know, my son Steve's a, a manager, and I've got, you know, Joe and Corey and Jason and Derek, and, and you know, I, you know, they do a great job, and it frees me up a lot. I feel like sometimes I'm just kind of overlooking some things and saying, Hey, what can we, should we do something here? And, you know, <laughs> and, and especially with the online thing growing there, they've got us doing more videos and, and way more stuff like that. That's, you know, you have to do these days. As far as the teaching at Ohio state, is there a primary focus or a style of teaching that you're covering there? I always feel like, first of all, you just have to have basic fundamentals together. Are your hands together? Do you play with a loose fluid style? You know, if you start, if you take, you know, stick control and and then add your feet to that, you know, as soon as you add your feet, do your hands tighten up? Uh, you know, does your right hand have to land with your right foot? All those kind of fundamental studies. I don't think being a, a reader makes you a better drummer, but, you know, it's a very competitive industry. If, you, you know, if you can read, that's a whole skill set that totally expands what you can do. So we do a lot of reading of charts and and figures you know you should be able to read rhythms without even thinking right. Um, right and then there's a whole style thing you know can you fit in every one of these styles and i always figure if i can get guys hands their reading their technique and their styles together then they can go wherever they want uh, i've got guys in new york doing well as as jazzers or, or playing in funk and rock settings and a guy going into nashville and so it's it's all music, as Ellington used to say, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. But if you can get all those fundamentals together, you know, their goals are going to be different than mine, and hopefully I can give a foundation to succeed. All that technique uh, is just, it's invaluable. And, and I think the most important thing that I've come to realize is it's kept me healthy with this instrument that can be so physically demanding Proper technique, I think, is the lifeblood as far as wanting to play for many years. Yeah, I think just, you know, hitting in a loose, fluid, graceful style, that, you know, your motion is your groove, it's your sound, and it's yeah. your ability to keep playing when you're, you know, Roy Haynes is, what, 94? You know, still amazing. Yeah, right. Um, you know, Chapin was playing till he was an, an old man, and, you know, a lot of Louis. A lot of our heroes were playing, but they had a, a, a graceful, fluid style. And and to a man, every every guy whose groove I liked, and they made me want to move and dance, and this could be a rock guy, a funk guy, a Latin guy, a jazz guy. I love watching him hit the drum. And sometimes if I hear a guy and it's like, no, oh, it doesn't feel very good. When you watch them play, you realize, oh, well, that's why. Yes. Um, so you're right. That transcends style, that, that whole fluid graceful touch are you originally from canton is that correct i'm originally from canton ohio yeah okay. and we had a really good junior high and high school band program and yeah you know i was playing in you know high school jazz ensemble and our, and our band director took us to see the the count basie band and it was butch miles was first on the band you know legendary basie drum butch and i are now are good friends and we text and stuff but <laughs> um I, I saw butch and i'm like i want to do that and yeah. of course, this is, you know, I'm in junior high in the late 60s and you're studying drums. Well, people say, oh, you're a drummer. Let me give you a Buddy Rich record. So, <laughs> you know, probably like, you know, my contemporary, you know, Hamilton came at it from that. Yeah. Um, and then I discovered Mel Lewis and Tony Williams and Philly Joe. 
and you know, then I kind of got it. We even had this band in high school with the Brass Review that did all kinds of blood, sweat, and tears and Chicago charts. And we had this other group that was trying to do Mahavishnu, Billy Cobham tunes. So it was a fertile time, you know, where yeah, all kinds of music was was you know around, and you loved it, and you were trying to, you know, you you wanted to sound like Billy Cobham this moment, and <laughs> Mel Lewis here, and. Tony Williams here and Steve Gadd here. Um, sooner or later, realize you're not going to achieve any of those goals, but you can kind of cop the essence of some of those guys when the music calls for it. I think I think that's what we all try and do. Ultimately, we we sound like ourselves at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think when you're a young player, you know, uh, Byron Stripling, who leads the Columbus Jazz Orchestra, always says you have to model the masters. And mm-hmm. at, at OSU, we do. I do this thing called um, a drummer report. I stole this from Steve Houghton at Indiana, another good buddy and a great player and teacher. Every semester, it's basically like, almost like a term paper project. You pick a major player, and you have to do a transcription and a listening study of, okay, here's Tony Williams, and here's what I listened to and what I liked and what I noticed, and here's characteristics of his style, and here's some of his time playing, and here's some of his soloing. I've transcribed both. Then we come together as a as a studio and we play those transcriptions for each other to the record. Mm. And it's amazing how much you learn by doing that. Again, you're right. We're never gonna, you know, we're never gonna sound like Tony, um, but it it, it d- helps you develop a, a sense of style because there's there's those two whole sides you're playing. One is technical. You know, do you have the hands? Can you do the coordination studies allow you to, to, you know, play what you're hearing in your head? But then the flip side of it is, uh, I always call it the muscle-bound drummer, some guy who's got tremendous chops and stuff but has no idea how to play music. And that all comes from listening and studying the masters, you know, in, in any style. You know, if, if we have to have this little computer printout that if somebody calls up a you know, a, a, a train beat in Nashville or a, a funk groove or a Latin groove to this tune, you've got this instant little printout that says, here's what this should feel like. And here's what's stylistically correct. And here's going to what, here's, this is what I'm going to do is going to make the rest of the band smile. I think that's our goal as drummers, you know, we make everybody else feel comfortable. Right. I, I know Bob made me do that. Um, do a transcription of Night in Tunisia, you know, just try and get this Elvin Jones feel. And it, it just to focus on one thing, because I think there's so much information out there, it's easy to get scatterbrained about yeah. what to focus on. And I just, I just love that idea. And you can take that to other styles, you know, out. Aside. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's not stylistic dependent. It's whatever, you know, any style. Yeah. As far as, your education early on, did you take private lessons? I did. I was really fortunate. I had some, some really good teachers who, who, you know, guided me in a variety of styles. And I had some really good players who'd been in my high school and had gone to like the Navy School of Music. And sometimes they'd be home. I remember a couple of them, a guy named Cal Haynes, uh, Kim Hall, both of whom are still playing. Uh, one of them, Cal's in Phoenix and Kim's down in, I think, Norfolk, I think he retired from the Navy. He was teaching down there. And I spent a couple summers, I think, with each of those guys. And, and uh, I think having a diversity of teachers was cool. And, and, you know, they were all incredibly helpful. 
Where did you go to college after high school? I went to Ohio State. Okay, that's and what I thought. At that time, there, there were very, very few jazz majors. I mean, I mm-hmm. think maybe North Texas and Berkeley, and you know, I'm sure there were a few other schools, but I was a music ed major, um, and it was a classical percussion. The jazz degree came in after I was went in school a couple of years. So uh, I, I was always grateful to my, I think, say, classical teachers at Ohio State because because they knew my strength was, I was actually a pretty good, darn good timpanist um, and a good snare drummer, drum set, was a dreadful mouth player. I still am. Um, <laughs> so when, when I got there, you know, the four mallet, the heavy marimba thing was really coming on strong. And I remember talking to Dr. Moore, who was the head of the department, saying, you know, Dr. Moore, I know I need to get some foundation here. I said, but I, I really, I don't have any real goals to, you know, become a solo marimbist or teach college percussion. I want to play drums. I want to be able to read. And he totally got it. So we did a lot of sight reading, a lot of two malice stuff. And that's a skill set um, that personally, and I find this now because I do the Cleveland Pops Orchestra. Sometimes I see college percussion programs where they're so emphasizing the marimba and these incredible, it's beautiful music and pieces. But can a guy sit down and read a snare drum part? Can he read a really hard two mallet part that you've got to play on a rehearsal and play on a concert that night? Um, that's the real world. Right. Um, uh, you know, so, so he, he was very gracious and, and flowed with me on what I thought I needed to help me succeed. He kind of tailored the program a little around me. And I must say, that's right. Let me tell you too. I yeah. had a really good drum set teacher in college, a guy named Jim Curlis. Yeah. Who still teaches here Columbus percussion and yeah. just was a fabulous, fabulous teacher. Really good guy. I, I took maybe two or three lessons from him. And um, I think to this day, there's some things that resonated with me uh, that I still think about uh, from those lessons with Jim. Yeah, he, he's come over. I started doing for that, I call that drum report hang where all my guys, you know, play their transcriptions for each other in a studio class. I invite different guests, you know, Reggie Jackson's been a guest, uh, you know, and I've had Jim in. And Jim has provided great, you know, insight and commentary and just still a still a mentor, really. Great guy. Yeah, yeah. I, it was, I saw him uh, listed on the teaching roster there at the shop. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, again, man, it was so fun to just do the research and, and look back and, and just see just uh, some familiar names and faces and, and all this. It's really, a, it was really a joy to, uh, do what I needed to, to prepare for this conversation. It was really awesome. Um, well, I'm, I'm honored you asked me, Matt. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I, I want to ask about the Woody Herman gig. Uh, there's just there's just a, a lineage of amazing drummers that uh, you know: Davy Tuff, Shelly Mann, uh, Sonny Igo, uh, Ed Sof in the '60s. Jake Anna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, all these guys. Uh, you mentioned Steve Houghton, uh, Jeff Hamilton in the '70s, and uh, John Von Olin did some work with him. Yes, yeah. John Von Olin did the band in the mid '60s. He's on a bus uh, or a band a band record called uh, road band, which is a great record of John, um, who was a real hero to, to Jeff Hamilton. And I both. Yeah. 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 We, uh, we try, we were going to try and get him. Uh, we have some mutual friends. Uh, we were trying to get him as a guest, um, on here. Unfortunately we weren't able to, um, but, um, 
Now, I wanted to ask about your approach to, was that, did you start in um, 82 working with them? The Woody's band? Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. January of 82, correct. Was there any preparation? Was there any conversation like, this is what is expected of the drummer, or how did you prepare for No, I, I mean, I, I played to those records with a pair of headphones, you know, all those great records with, with Jay Canna and Phil Barbara and, and Ed Sof. So I, I knew a lot of those charts. That's always, uh, you know, it's one of my things I stress to my students, you know, especially if they're in high school or college, you got to be able to read. It's a, it's a key skill to, you know, to working as a musician, but man, as soon as you can throw away the chart, I want to do so. Um, mm. So, you know, that's one more. It's, it sucks bandwidth if you have to read. Uh, so, A, the better the reader you are, the less bandwidth it sucks. And if if you can get rid of it totally, that used to be my project on either Maynard's band or any of the bands, Woody's band, is I'd put the chart up there and I'd read it. And then after a bit, I'd say, okay, I don't think I need this anymore. And when I could leave it there and not have to look over, then I wouldn't bother pulling it. Um, so I, I, a, I try to do as much research as I can. And, and, uh, I, I think I had about three weeks before I had to go out on the band the first time. And so I really did a bunch of homework and somebody sent me a few gig tapes back in cassette days. <laughs> so I studied, so I kind of learned what was going on. Um, and I think again, if you've, you know, that was a dream gig for me, um, as was Maynard's band. So, I, I had done a homework and I had a real good feeling for the style. Um, you know, you, you study those guys. I think that's an interesting thing about Woody's band though, is stylistically the drum chair could be very diverse. Yes. Um, you know, Jeff Hamilton's, you know, a, a, one of the greats and a, and a real good buddy. And so's Ed so, and they both played that band very differently. You know, Ed's, Ed's, you know, like Roy Haynes in a big band and, and Jeff is, you know, hard swinging, uh, Mel Lewis, John Von Olin in, in a band and both have worked in both. Um, so I think there is freedom is a lot of freedom in that chair in that band, maybe a little more so than some, some other bands where it's a little more style stylized. I would say, and that's not a negative. It's, you know, uh, it's just different. You know, the Ellington band, there was this, you know, you had to kind of fit that style, which is, God, I love that band. I love the drummers in it, but it's it's a little more diverse on Woody's band. And again, it's neither positive nor negative. It's just different. One of the questions I had is is just with the different people that you've worked with. Has there ever been like a just a like oh my gosh pinch me moment? I get to do this. I, I'm wondering if the, oh, if that band fell into that ton, category. Ton, oh, absolutely, ton of them. I can tell you numerous moments. You know, I, I think I've told this story to a few folks before, but my first night on Maynard's band, I'm literally 10 days out of Ohio State. Um, I've, you know, I fly in for an afternoon rehearsal with the band. The next day, all I know is we're playing at Wolf Trap in Virginia, and I don't know what Wolf Trap is. And I get there, and I realize it's a jazz festival. There's 15,000 people. It's a big kind of lawn amphitheater and everything. And I'm backstage, and I'm already scared to death. And... <laughs> The road, to, road manager comes down and says, hey, Jim, we got your drums on a little riser. You probably want to go up and tweak and make sure the setup feels good to you. 
and when Buddy's done, we'll move his riser off and move yours, yours over, and, and we'll start our set. So I'm 10 days out of college. I got to follow Buddy Rich on my first night on Maynard Ferguson's band. <laughs> and and Maynard came over to me, and he, he you know, put his hand on my shoulder, and, and he said, hey, kid, you sounded great at rehearsal yesterday afternoon. Let's go have some fun. And I think he knew I was sitting back there watching Buddy, and we just scared to death. You know, yeah. and all of a sudden it kind of relaxed me. And, and that mental game, the longer I teach and the longer I play, that mental game is huge in, in, in what we do as musicians, not just drummers, but trumpet players. I, I remember playing a thing with a, a, an orchestra one time and this legendary lead trumpet player, we kind of hang in a little bit. And this is a classical, you know, first trumpet player, I should say. Um, he starts talking about it. And I realized, this guy deals with the same mental issues and it's, and my students deal with it. I do. We all deal with it. Yeah. So I'm sitting there thinking, um, I was watching Ohio state, you know, being Ohio state alum and teaching there. I'm watching this game of a couple of years ago where Ohio state is playing Michigan. We're at Michigan. We're down by six points and the first string quarterback gets injured. They put in, I can't, I am embarrassed. I can't remember who the second string kid was. And he comes out there and just takes control of that game, and they come back and win the game. How do you prepare an 18, 19-year-old kid when you're in the, you know, the biggest game of the year, your arch rival, you're down by six points, you're at their stadium? The mental game there has to be huge. How do, how do coaches prepare athletes for that? Or it could be an Olympic athlete, you know, where you've got one shot at this skating routine. So I've kind of made it a little bit of a thing this summer to do some reading. You know, I remember that inner game of tennis was big when I was in college. That's been mentioned uh, before, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a there's a book that actually the base teacher of Ohio State, Barry Green, wrote the inner game of music. Um, and I've read both those. I've read some other... Oh, who's a great pianist who wrote a book? Uh, Jim? I can't believe I can't think of it. But that... Um, but I've started looking more just... To, out of curiosity, because I think it's probably more pressure. Athletes, how do how do big time athletes deal with the mental game? You know, you get some quarterback like that who goes in and all of a sudden he throws an interception. Oh my god! You know, that's that's like a gut check. Well, he's got to come back the next play and and you know throw that ball again. Um, it's like us if you you know you screw up a fill or something isn't quite right. You know, maybe the, you're in the recording studio and the tape doesn't feel good. You feel like everybody's looking over at you, you know, how do you deal with those mental gains that yeah. you got to be tough and you got to play? Yeah. I almost feel like there is, there's a challenge throughout different stages of your life. And there's a, a gift in that I think young people have. They don't, there's no filter. There's like, there's the experience of success and fa failure isn't as great as it is later in life. And I feel like the mental game, at least for me, gets more challenging as you get older because you know what failure feels like. You know what success feels like. And so you're always trying to strive for it. It just, I I think with experience and that it would get easier, but I'm, but I think there's times where it can be almost more challenging uh, at times. You know what the um, the outcome can be, um, you know, good and bad. Yeah. 
And yep. so sometimes the pressure right. is is greater. Um, you know, people are watching and it's like, well, this person has experience. I want they expect more from you. Expect more from yourself. I guess is the bottom line. From yeah, I, and I've had that thought of some of the the big guns where you know our our current hero, great heroes, or whoever the heavy duty players that mm-hmm. they go out and do a big time drum clinic or or some big event. I mean, I think, and then they've got the company people looking at them that their sponsors and stuff that they better be slamming, you know, they better be, have their a game on or, you know, oh, it's not so good, you know, or something. So yeah, you may be right, Matt. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think we all at some point along the line, we have to realize what we do well and what we need to work on and, you know, prepare, prepare, try and fill up what we're not so good at and, Keep up what we're good at, if you know what I'm saying. I do. That's what we all do. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there ever a time that you have downtime to sit down and, and just play or or practice or work on anything? Yeah, not as not as much as I, I want, obviously. But you know, at at, at uh, you know, I'm, I'm going over to Ohio State tonight. I've got a kid coming in from out of town for a lesson who's a recruit, and you know, I'm going to be done at seven. Well, I've got some time there at the end of that. I'm going to get some practice time in. Um, obviously I get a kid at home sometimes, you know, early in the morning I'll get stuff for evenings or something. You know, you, you got to keep growing and you've got to keep your chops up. Um, especially, you know, I'm 62. I I think my, my hands and, and move around the drums feel as good as it ever has. But I've noticed lately, uh, something, my, my legs are getting a little tired. So I'm a cyclist. I've gotten back out. I'm really I mean, if I could get an early morning ride this morning and doing a bunch of exercises and man, make sure I'm, I'm keeping up and, and staying in shape. We're, we're athletes as drummers. Right. You can't right. ignore that. I don't think. Is there anything that you're spending time on when you have, like, is there any intentional, like, okay, when I get back to some free time to practice, this is what I want to spend my time on. I have two things I'm, I'm focused on. Um, mm-hmm. lately, a, some, some like, Latin studies, especially with like using the bass drum in in non uh, traditional ways or ways that aren't as natural to me as, a, for instance, a jazz drummer. Um, and the second thing is is soloing, get more and more comfortable soloing over forms. Yeah, my yeah. students all, all have to do that uh, every week. We have a tune of the week. You got to come in and you, you have to comp to the form of a, of a tune. It's play the melody to it, then you have to solo over the top of that. And I think I'm reasonably comfortable there, but that's something that that I I just want to get more and more comfortable at. Right, right. Have you noticed a change in this in the approach that the students have to their instruments these days with the access to information, uh, YouTube? Uh, just there's so much now, and I've I've asked yeah. this question to a couple different teachers and educators about maybe some new challenges that have to be addressed with this just a massive amount of information that uh, young people have access to. Yeah. A, a couple thoughts are that, I mean, there's huge advantages out of providing information. You know, we all have, I just did this thing, what, three weeks ago for jazz at Lincoln center with, you know, it's a band director's academy. Then we had a gig with the faculty at, 
Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola. But I gave these guys records. To, you know, here's a great record of the Basie band here or whatever. It's, it was focused on a, a band directors who were there to kind of grasp a, a stylized thing for their high school groups. And somebody said to me, I realized I looked at everybody else's notes. They're not giving them names of records. They're giving names of records and YouTube links. Mm. So wow. yeah, I realized that yeah, I was a little out of date there, I guess. Um, but that massive amount of information, sometimes you, you, you get lost in the swamp. If you know what I'm saying, you know, when I feel like I'm saying, Oh, when I was a kid, you know, you bought one record and you'd wear it out. You know, I can play you all of Ed Sills fills off of giant stuff. I can pay, <laughs> play you all of Sonny Payne's fills off of Basis and Afterlife Live at the Sands and all Mel Lewis's fills off Consummation. I could play those charts, you know, without a chart. Um, because you bought a record and, and you didn't have a lot of money and you didn't have any other way to, to learn stuff. Right. Um, and I think there's value to that. The other thing I think that's missing that we take very casually is the cool thing is everybody's listening to music in their car and their earbuds are walking across town or campus or whatever, but there's not as much group listening or active. I call it active listening where you sit down and either to a nice pair of speakers or to even your, you know, ideally it's a pair of speakers with some buddies and you really put on a record. You listen to, you know, whoever it is play and, and sit there and think, Oh man, check that out. Listen to what's going on. Right. You know, you need to do both kinds of listening. And I, I sense anymore it's it's hard for students to stop and do active listening. They're they're always kind of passively listening, you know. Always have the earbuds in. Um but that other side is you know, probably more important really. Especially in the formative yeah. years when you have everyone at different stages and and listening skills, yep. and you've got a buddy that points something out that maybe you hadn't noticed. Um, I love that. I and it was a it was a discovery thing too, because you'd buy a, a, a whatever a Miles Davis record, you say, "Who's the drummer? Well, that's Tony Williams. I don't know Tony. Williams. What other records is he on?" Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you might go to a record store and you find, "Oh, he played on this record. Oh, he has a record out of his own called Million Dollar Legs or whatever." You know, there was a real period of discovery now. Sometimes my students will bring in a, a, a tune they're listening. What do you listen to? Oh, that's cool. Who's the drummer? Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, you need to know that. Right. And what else has he done? What's, what's his thing? The other thing that I, 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 I think is different, it's, it's, it's gotten worse, but it's getting better. It's just general, you know, a, a stiff approach to the hands, you know, where the, um, you know, some guys get, if they have instruction in the marching room, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a product of school band. I love marching band and, you know, played in college and high school. I have no problem there, but there, there are certain areas where they're still teaching, you know, the elbows are way out and it's a very stiff, rigid approach. And I think that just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think it works in that arena. It certainly doesn't work for, you know, concert drumming or drum set. So sometimes I have students who are really, talented stuff and we spend a fair amount of time okay relax let the stick do the work you know you're doing all the work and but i see that getting better and better i yeah. do i think that's i think people are realizing that's probably not the healthiest way to to teach a program run a program 
This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. Nobody cares how fast you can play single-stroke rolls around the drums. They want to hear you play a groove, be it a, a jazz groove or a pop groove or a Latin groove or a country groove. Um, I, I can remember getting off my first tour on Maynard Ferguson's band and getting called, and I had like three weeks off, got called to do a recording session in Columbus. And at this point, I'm feeling pretty good, man. I'm playing, <laughs> you know, at National Act. We're touring the country, and... And I go into the studio, and the guy was music hall recording in Columbus, Ohio. And the guy said, oh, the gym is just a little 60-second jingle. It's a pop groove. We already got drums there. Just come over, bring your cymbals. And I walked in, and they changed. It was now a country freight train group. And I thought, well, I can, I can you know, I've never played a country gig. I can probably do that. I listened back the first take, and I thought, ooh, you know, it, I'm not out of time. But, boy, it just doesn't feel right. And luckily, they were messing with synth sounds, so I'm back over in the corner of the drum booth just setting this groove with a pair of brushes kind of on my leg. And, and when they got stuff together, they came back, okay, let's do take two. It, you know, it, it felt a lot better. But, you know, sometimes the simplest things, if you don't understand the essence of the style or having done it, you're going to struggle with it. You know? Right, right. It, you can't take it for granted. No, no. I think that is an epiphany that uh, you come to. It's it's the simple stuff that gets overlooked, especially when you're going through a period of your life where you're just you're learning, you're growing so fast, and you're learning so much, and then all of a sudden you have to do something simple that maybe you glossed over because you're like, oh man, I got that. That's that's no that's no big deal. But then, especially recording yeah. under the microscope, right. Under the microscope, that's right. You're yeah. like, that doesn't feel real good. Yeah, there's 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 an art to that for sure. Boy, I wish I could remember the name of that book. It, it might not be, but I have it, and it's upstairs. <laughs> oh, I know what it is. It's effortless mastery. Effortless mastery. Yes, and yes. I am going to. Because I wrote The Art of Mass Effortless Mastery. I have read that once, and I have it on my list to read a second time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kenny no, Werner. I, yeah, Kenny Werner. Correct. Yeah, Effortless Mastery. Thank you Great for... Great pianist. Yeah. But I've started looking at sports. Um, sports used to say, what's the take with athletes? You know, get the other side of the two. But I wanted to ask you about your work with Diane Shure. Um, you were with her for eight years. Yeah, I think at least I think it may have been closer to ten, a long okay. time. But yeah, what an amazing talent and and you know, just a neat lady. We were very much buds, and you know, it's been, matter of fact, you remind me I should call her or something. But yeah, those are some fun years, and you know, we traveled all over the world. A lot of fun, and I love backing singers. I I subbed for Tony Bennett. I start out with Joe LaBarbera and, and with other guys, and, and you know. I really enjoy backing a great singer, and obviously Diane and Tony are, are both. Right. That's um, amazing. I always say, boy, you have no idea the service when you pull up in a white limo to an Italian restaurant with Tony Bennett. That's when you get <laughs> <laughs> services out there. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I, any unique stories yeah. of, of working with either of those people? I can remember one time uh, I was, I'd was i subbed for La Barbara. I forget who else I did. 
and I, I was, I got called to go out. That's right. Clayton Cameron had was playing tennis and pulled his Achilles tendon. And I had to fly out the next day. Um, and it's interesting because there was no drum music, you know, the, he was just kind of had to know the arrangements mm-hmm. and it, my, it was a little tough on me because my first three times it was three different pianists. First it was longtime Ralph Sharon who was with him for 30 some years. Then it was Vinnie Falcone who was Sinatra's pianist. And then it was, um, Bobby Tucker, if I'm not mistaken, who I think was Eckstein's pianist, but they all had little different t- versions of the arrangements. So I'm trying to remember, you know, I made a bunch of notes and, and, you know, had little note cards there to kind of cue me for, okay, there's one chorus of piano, bass comes in, I come in at the bridge and stuff like that. But um, I remember one time getting called and we did two weeks in Vegas with Tony with a full orchestra. And it was just, it was like the first 20 minutes or so with the trio. And then this little black screen, you know, curtain would an old see-through curtain would open up and there was this full orchestra in the last two-thirds of the concert. And I remember when that last night came, I was practically in tears because I didn't want that to end. Hmm. It was just gorgeous. And Tony was in singing, you know, he's still singing great. Tony was singing great, great music, great time. You know, those, those are the moments you live for. Well, that was worth the traveling and, and all that stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. It's worth the, the other... 22 hours where, <laughs> you know, you're, you're dealing with airplane and having ridden a band bus for so many years, I remember I first went with Diane. Sure. You know, it's a trio. We're flying everywhere. Limo meets you at the airport. Da, da, da. I thought, Oh, I'm going to love this. No more of the, you know, riding on that darn bus and diesel fumes and stuff. Well, after a while I realized, well, you know, every promoter wants to make sure you get in on time. So you may have played a concert or a club gig the night before, but they're going to put you on a 7 a.m. flight to make sure right. if something gets backed up or weather delays, you still get in in time to play their concert. Well, to make a 7 a.m. flight, what time you got to get out? You know, you're up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning and, you know, it, it and, you know, you got to be on time. If you're a little late for the bus, the guys would give you a hard time, but, you know, you could still pour onto the bus and, in, in practically your pajamas and get a shower when you got into the next town or something. Yeah, I kind of grew to miss the bus a little bit, to be honest with you. Right. I mean, you could get on, a, if it was a tour bus, you could just cl- climb in your bunk and catch up on sleep yeah. or something. But man, a plane, yeah. if you can't sleep on a plane, whew. Uh, I have a hard time. I can do somewhat, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I feel very fortunate to have done some really great gigs with some wonderful people i've have, I'm having a blessed life i still am yeah it definitely sounds oh i one of the last times i saw you in person uh, i had moved down to nashville and we were talking about ordering backline and you said to me he, he said yeah but you always get what you want i was like well, what do you mean i'm like i know i wanted this i wanted this brand kit i, I wanted a, a 12 inch not a 13 inch rack tom and 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 you were like no 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 it, it doesn't matter. You always, if you're doing a jazz gig, trying to get backline is that's the challenge. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite story is with Diane Shura. We're playing Martinique, if I'm not mistaken, and you know I want a little 18 or 20 inch bass drum, 12, 14 coated heads, classic jazz kit, and I've you know I'm not a. For snaking about it. just give me something reasonably close and, right 
and we get there and it's a 24 inch Tama bass drum with a, with a black dot head, <laughs> only the back head, a 13 and 18 inch floor toms with black dots, top heads only, and an eight by 14 metal Tama snare drum with a black, clear black dot on it with <laughs> leftover res- residue from duct tape on the head. Perfect and, for brushes. You know, I'm playing a little j- jazz trio at a theater. It's like, oh, God, can't, you know. And But you do what you got to do. I told, I said, I got to have a snare drum head. I got to have a coated ambassador snare drum head. And they kind of gave me a hard time. I said, I can't play this gig. I can make everything else work. Like, as I learned years ago, first you, I can, you know, I peel the black dots off. So then you just have a clear ambassador. You know, you, you do what you got to do. But right. they did find me finally. It was used, but they found me a coated ambassador. <laughs> and I will also tell you, after that, I carried one of my symbol bag for years. Yeah, yeah, man. If yeah. if you if you don't have a lot of room or you don't want to carry a lot of stuff, man, just a fresh snare head, top snare head of yeah. whatever you whatever works for you is a great is a great thing, man. And just a, it's a little bit of creature comfort that makes it happen. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. exactly right. No, that was hilarious. I'm, I I didn't understand what you were saying. I'm like, no, 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 that wasn't the drum set. And you're like, no, you don't understand. If you want an 18 inch kick, 12, 14, you know, I was like, oh, of course. Because some of these places <laughs> yeah. you play, they're like, what? <laughs> what do you want? Yeah, yeah right. That was they crazy. don't get it. Yeah. And then you get there and your 18 inch bass drum has a big hole in, in the, right in the center of the, the bass drum head. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the drum shop again. My five five and a half years there was just was glorious uh, as an employee, but also uh, as a customer, uh, having grown up in Columbus and uh, going to the small shop, the original location, I believe, uh, just north, uh, just south of Jerry's restaurant when it was there. Yep, that's right. Uh, yeah. I think it was called. Um, Columbus Percussion Columbus Center. Columbus Percussion. Yeah. Right. Early on. Right. Um, and just just such such a great thing to grow up with, and uh, and then later to become a part of uh, for that time and during the those expansive years of knocking out walls. But I never really knew the history um, as much, and I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, you guys started in 1981. Yep. Correct, yeah. 1981. My p- partner in your teacher capital was Bob Brighthop, and mm-hmm. he was part-time at that point. And I was on and off the road, and we thought, well, this make a good partnership. And, you know, Bob and I are, are great buddies to this day. I mean, he, I don't know how many years ago now, I'm going to say 15 years ago, you know, he, he you know, he, he's just so busy with everything he has going on, he could no longer, you know, is no longer a partner. But it was very amiable. He was very gracious. And, and but, you know, we used to laugh. I think it was five years before we took a dime out of the store. We didn't have a ton of money. And I'd, I'd bring in my home vacuum on Mondays and, and vacuum the store and then take it back home Monday evening. Um, <laughs> you know, and if, if we sold two simple stands, we'd buy three. You know, so it, it was a gradual building. Um, and it's, it still is. The, the biggest change, obviously, the drum, drum market peaked in 08. Uh, drum set sales are down big time, 60-some percent since then. So it's a smaller market. And obviously with Amazon and, and, you know, the 
internet, uh, you know, that, that makes it tougher to survive. So customer service, I think, is more important than ever. Right. As is, you know, having good uh, internet, internet presence and videos and stuff like that. And so it's funny, the, the Zildjian guys right here, it's a big Zildjian week last week, and we were all talking. You know, you can kind of get, if you're buying a cymbal stand, I still personally like to even feel a cymbal. So what's this? Is the machining feel good? Is it light? Is it going to, you know, I like, I like handling things I'm going to buy, be it a pair of shoes or, or a cymbal stand. But sometimes it can, people buy instruments, uh, especially a cymbal where they're all handmade. I mean, that's the advantage of a store. Like, you know, you've got Forks there or Ray Francis in New Orleans or Bentley's or Hollywood Pro Drum or, you know, Maxwell's in New York. You got guys that know the stuff, and they're, you know, they're going to help you out, and you're going to play that cymbal or that snare drum or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, some guys value that, some guys don't. You know, so it's just it's changed a little bit. It just yeah, that just really amazes me. I, I, you know, even even snare drums and just head choices and cymbals are very obvious, uh, especially uh, with this trend in coming back to darker sounding, drier cymbals, um, you know, especially with, uh, as Minel has grown in prominence in the market, uh, you've got uh, these great new sounds and textures and colors, but they really require a hands-on thing because the same model cymbal can sound completely different when you pair them. Yeah, and, and to me, I've noticed that trend, which, which in general, I, I've always been a K guy, I like, Mm -hmm. you know, a darker, richer symbol. But it's funny, you can go to a certain point and you can start to get dark and rich and it doesn't take too long and all of a sudden you're over into just trash can. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 that's my personal, t you know, it, yeah. it, it can, it, it, yeah. Go too far. I, I like the dark rich, but sometimes I see guys spend a small fortune for a symbol and I'm like, yeah, I, you could get this for one of the, you know, foreign-made brands for a lot less, but it, it, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting time. Um, I'll never forget my first manager, you know, being the jazz bow. You know, one time we were having a beer afterwards, and he said to me, Jim, you got to realize that everybody wants Gretsch drums, caves, olds, and cymbals, and remote-coded ambassador heads. <laughs> so, you know, our own personal biases, uh, you got to find what that customer needs and wants and, and not let your own bias. It's one thing you got to be honest. I, I often use this analogy. A guy comes in and says, yes, I want a, um, one of those Evans hydraulic drum heads. I love that big wide open sound. Well, then you're at a dilemma because on one hand, you know, I mean, this is nothing against Evans heads. This was makes them, you know, guys want them because they're, they're, they lose that resonance. It's just a, a thicker, fatter sound or something. Yeah. But it's not a wide open resonant sound. So you've got to tell someone, well, you know, you might want to that, that oil kind of drives that head up a little. And if you sense that that's what they want, you've been honest, you've maintained your integrity, you've given advice, but you're not going to tell them they're wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a delicate balance, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. Well, it's the, the customer's always right. And, and yet there is almost like a stealthy way of making them uh, kind of finding what it is that they need, not telling them what they want, uh, but also kind of helping them discover the right answer for them. 
uh, and then making yeah. them feel important. But you've assisted, but creating an atmosphere that like, okay, I, I accomplished my goal. I got what I want. And that, that's the place where I went that helped me. I need to go back to that shop. I need to go back to those people that helped me f- discover that. And they were, they were nice. I remember one time at a, at a drum shop in a major city, I, I was talking to some local guys I knew and, and they said, I said, I'd been over there. I said, well, they probably talked to you. You're touring with Tony Bennett. I said, what? They said, oh yeah, if you're just one of the local guys, you know, you're kind of treated as riffraff. And you know, it's been a stress of mine is it doesn't matter who you are. If you're one of the heavy duty players in Columbus or I'm sure in Nashville, Gary feels this way that when he ran the shop and, and, um, Oh, golly, a good buddy of mine runs it now. Um, Terry, Terry Bissett runs yeah, it. Terry mm-hmm. Yeah, Terry Bissett. Yeah, Terry's an old buddy and a really good guy. You know, you want to make sure you treat every customer as equally important as some beginner or some semi-pro uh, or some, you know, one of your key, one of the pros around town. Yeah. There's an old saying in, in retail that, you know, 20% of your customers could care less about price if they like your service, you and what you do. 20%, you know, or 20% of your customers care only about price, but 60% of your customers, if you're, you know, if you're reasonably, you know, they'll appreciate what you do and they'll go with you on it. But, yeah. And I think between that 60 and that top 20, that's, that's who we need to focus on because there's always somebody willing to sell something a little bit cheaper and, and it's, it's a balance, you know, you want to treat your people well and give them a good fair price, but you've also got to keep the doors open. Did you have any experience working retail or doing anything like this before you guys started? I worked in high school at uh, and college, actually, in, at a high-end stereo shop. And to this day, I'm still an audiophile. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I worked at a high-end stereo shop, which I loved. You know, listen to music all the time. And the guy who owned it was a jazz lover. Mm-hmm. So I can remember, you know, us figuring out that Oscar Peterson, when we get requests, was a great demo record for a pair of Dalk with speakers, <laughs> stuff like that. Right. And he had a very similar, you know, very customer driven, um, was a really good guy with a store called Audio Corner in Canton, Ohio. You mentioned the online thing and how that's changed. I know that uh, the big Drum Days event was... Uh, a big thing every year, a big annual thing that uh, was always mm-hmm. amazing. I'm uh, happy to be a part of some of that in the early years that Jeff Hartso was a big part of. And Oh, yeah, that first one was all Jeff Hartso. Yeah. I, and um, I see that that's not a thing anymore. And I remember talking, to, having a conversation with Gary about uh, clinics and how um, it's there was a time just in recent years where that it just was – not clinics weren't a regular part of the store thing. Are you, is that, has that been your experience as well? Um, well, the company, let's face it, the industry is smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company's budgets are, are much tighter and they're, you know, helping to fund clinics and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it, it's, I still believe that they're, they're really valuable on a couple fronts. They, they, you know, <clears throat> you're doing something for your customers you're doing something for the art, um, and you're 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 making your store the center of what's going on. It's great marketing, right? It's a it's a it can be a win for everybody. Um, we stopped doing drum days. There were two reasons. One one really killed it, but yeah, it was it was tougher to get a little tougher to get company support. Um, 
and you know, we were, you know, we had a, it was never a money maker. And as the industry grew a little smaller, we're like, oh boy, it's, it's, it's getting tougher. But the real killer was, was the last year we did it, you know, I, I, cause we'd done it for what, 20 years. They would just send me the contract. It was very casual. You know, I get the contract three or four weeks before the event. I noticed this paragraph that says Ticketmaster is to sell all tickets. Oy. And, and I just exited out, sent in the contract and they called me back and said, Hey, Jim, just so you know, I know we're late this year, but next year, you know, we have a contract for all the theaters in Central Ohio. Ticketmaster sells the tickets. And, and we're like, well, that kills it because it's not a money maker. Mm-hmm. And now if Ticketmaster has to sell the tickets, ticket price is going to go up eight or 10 bucks. Yeah. That's going to hurt our crowd. And it's, it's really a marketing event, but now they're going to be going to our website. No, they're going to go to Ticketmaster's website. So that was the final straw. To be gotcha. Honest. Boy, that sucks. It's, yeah. Yeah. That was a fun event. Yeah. It was really amazing. Just met some wonderful players. And it was, yeah. And it was a great hang. You know, we had that big backstage green room with dinner and you'd have, people from the companies and the artists and, and, you know, everybody was chatting and everybody would sneak out to catch somebody from the wings play. Cause you, you know, there was a real sense of community like PASIC. Mm-hmm. You know, PASIC is an amazing event. Um, there's nothing else like it in the, certainly the music industry. Yeah. You know, a big, big love fest of, of drummers from around the, the drummers and percussionists and hand drummers and orchestral players. It's, you know, if any of your listeners have never gone to that. It's 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 an amazing. Yeah, we, event. we a few years ago uh, had a chance to go up to the museum when when Jeff Hartso was working at PASIC or PAS and yeah, and yeah. Uh, we did an interview with him and and that was great. Um, so need to revisit that. The the uh, you, you guys are doing some amazing stuff, uh, especially with the online uh, gear demo videos that are on there. And um, th- that's at uh, Columbus, see, uh, columbuspercussion.com uh, to check those out. Uh, but those are really well done, Jim. Uh, it's, it's just great, just great sound, great visual. And um, who's, the, who's the young dude that, that does a lot of those? Uh, I've got two young guys, Corey, my guy, Corey and Joe are both, you know, that's, that's all them. They're, it's, it's they phenomenal. Mike it up and, and Corey is so easy. Both of them are great players. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Corey is, is adds some humor in there at times. And, and it's, yeah, he makes it appealing um, and fun to watch. I mean, there's no reason it can't be fun as, as well as, you know, let you hear a new product and talk about it or hear something that's out. Yeah, absolutely. It's just that's that credit of all due to those two. Well, it's it's so well done, um, and it's just definitely worth checking out. ClumsPercussion.com, and of course, we'll have links in our show notes that that have that as well. What what does the future hold for Columbus Pro Percussion? Well, we're going to try and keep doing what we're doing and get more and more savvy online. Obviously, that's that's got to get there, and um, you know, the school market is very important to us. We cater to to schools, be they concert bands or orchestras or marching bands around the country. That's a big part of what we do. Yeah. And you may remember Ed Baldwin. Do you remember Ed was a tech there in the late eighties? Does that ring a bell? Is he I a guess blonde, maybe even early nineties. Blonde hair guy. Yeah. Yeah, I do Ed remember he back. did some work for me. Yeah, okay. Chris reti- yeah, Chris retired after twenty seven years and Ed is back and 
we love Chris dearly, but Ed picked up and is doing a great job also. So we feel really fortunate to have had two really good checks in here in yeah. the recent decades. And, and, you know, we do a fair amount of custom work and stuff like that, wraps and bearing edges and yep. all kinds of stuff. I love that. I think just out of capital, Joel Stewart called me and said, hey, we're, uh, we're looking for somebody to, to work, do some retail work, and wonder if you'd be interested. And I, you know, just it, 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 you guys were, were my shop. And I'm just like, do I want to be surrounded by drummers all day long? Or do I want to meet guitar players? How do I get in this scene? You know, I, I, I hesitated. I was like, no, because I was going to work at a music store. I was going to work selling records. Uh, that's ah, going to be the start. I didn't and then, know this. Yeah. And uh, I was actually on my way to an interview. Or maybe I'd finished my interview at the record shop. And uh, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come in. And they're like, okay, so um, it'll be, you know, me and Jim and, and Jeff uh, talking to you. So one of the things we like to do is we like to listen to you play. I mean, we want, we want players that, that could work here. So if you, you just bring bring some sticks, whatever. And I'm like, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm like, what are they going to ask for? I, I, have to, I have to play, audition? Like, they, they, want to, what, they want to hear different styles, all this stuff? So I, I came in with my stick bag, and I'm sitting there, and, man, you couldn't keep a straight face. And you said, we're not going to make you play, man. They're just, and, of course, Jeff and Joel, they're just cracking up. They're like, ah, we got you, man. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. I was like, man, you guys... I think that's when I thought this will be a good fit, uh, you know. This... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. I feel very blessed. I've had a, you know, we're still having a great run. It's been thirty-eight years, and I've worked that's with some amazing. all those people you named are friends, and and yeah. we all love music, we all love drumming, and we're around it. That's that's a lot, and and like you mentioned, you know, they're in Nashville. Gary Forkham and I are. We still talk. Yeah, and Rob Berenbaum, who owned Drum Headquarters in St. Louis, is one of my oldest friends. And Rob and I talk every once in a while. And Ray Franson in New Orleans, and all these guys, we're all, you know, we're all friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, it, when I started this three and a half, four years ago, I made my wish list of all the people that I wanted to talk to, and. Uh, you know, the list grows and it ebbs and flows. And I'm, I've met so many people through this podcast. Uh, but y you've always been there on the list uh, for so many reasons. My, again, my experience at the shop uh, as, a, as a drum owner, as a drum store owner, as, as a player, and all those things. And I just, I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your, your week, your busy time to talk to us about your history and, and the shop and, and just to hopefully raise some awareness about uh, how great the, the store is and and all the things you guys continue to do well I'm honored you asked Matt and I'm, I'm happy you and the family are doing well and I certainly wish you all the best in everything you do man keep keep it up keep it up yeah man but uh, but dude thanks again um, I, I love what we've talked about and and um I'm excited for people to hear this. God bless. Thanks again for calling, buddy. Sure, man. All right, Jim. I'll All right. talk to you soon, man. All right, man. Tell thanks. the family hello. I will. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> Bye, man. Yeah. Many thanks to Jim Rupp for taking some time to speak with us. Uh, I have uh, fond memories of being a young drummer as a customer there at Columbus Percussion, and then later after school working for Jim 
Uh, it was such a, an important time for me to learn so much about music and retail and just being a, a, a decent human being that, uh, that, that Jim is. And um, it was great to have him and hope you all enjoyed that episode. We're going to do a quick turnaround here and share with you our last conversation with Arjuna Contreras. We've been following him for the last year on his musical journey. So here is our last phone call with Arjuna. Hey there, Matt. Hey, Arjuna, man. How are you? Good. How are you doing, brother? I'm good, dude. How have you been? Uh, good. Yeah, really good, man. You know, I've been on break for a few weeks, finally over all the sickness that was coming and going. Oh, my gosh. That's right. You know, just in time to go back out on the road and get sick again. <laughs> <laughs> um, get ready. But, uh, yeah, I spent some time, you know, visiting my folks in Wisconsin and you know, I was in Nashville for gosh, almost two weeks, uh, including you know during uh, during Summer Jam, and uh, now I'm back in Dallas doing some recording this week. You know, those couple different recording projects that I've mentioned right. in the past with the band, and then we um, we head out on Friday for uh, three and a half weeks or so. Okay. <laughs> so we're we're back to work. I was looking at the uh, the website. And our interview, number 174, was done and published June 28th, 2018. And wow. Yeah, shortly thereafter, or maybe <laughs> during, no, actually during, because it's in the, it's in the subtitle there, that we were going to document your first year here in Nashville. Yeah. And um, yeah. so it's been an interesting journey because there's been epiphanies about, you know, what you're doing, how you're making a living and um, where the work is and, you know, just lots of different things. So I wanted to kind totally. of, in a sense, kind of wrap things up, talk about what's been happening over this year, uh, and mm -hmm. then also mention the fact that um, I know that the move hasn't been as black and white as maybe a lot of us anticipated it would be, if that's the right term mm -hmm. to use. But I've gotten some responses from listeners that have enjoyed this journey and have enjoyed mm. catching up and listening to what you're doing and how you're juggling different things and um, some of the maybe unpredictable challenges that you've had in mm -hmm. wanting to make this move, um, but still you know, stay with the, you know, keep on working with the Rev and, and doing yeah, all these different things. Yeah. So could you speak to any of that or maybe this last year or kind of how that's sure. all come about? Well, you're right that it, it really, you know, I was in, in preparation to talking with you today. I was kind of thinking and kind of reflecting back, man, it really has been a journey of like personal discovery, I would say. And you know, coming to realizations about what I'm looking for, you know, with my music and my drumming and, um, what's important to me. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where I had one idea of how this last year was going to go for me. And as the year progressed, yeah, I started realizing that, well, that's not exactly maybe what's in the plan for me or in the cards for me, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, after, you know, experiencing 
what Nashville's about and talking to, you know, friends that I have out there and, you know, comparing notes on what I've, I'm doing and what guys are doing out there. It made me really realize how fortunate, fortunate I am to, to be doing what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that the consistency of work and, you know, the, you know, the generous amount that I'm paid, you know, to do what I'm doing mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, really something that I think, of, you know, not only a lot of guys in Nashville, but guys anywhere in the music industry, you know, are striving for. So it's, it's not something that I should be so quick to try to move away from, I guess, you mm-hmm. know? So uh, I think what I've realized over the last year is that, you know, I, man, I, I really, I love Nashville. I love hanging out there and I'm always open to other, you know, musical possibilities um, you know, opportunities to make music with, with new people. But I also really love my gig with the Rev, you know, and right. I, you know, I, I love the music that we're playing. It's, you know, it's become a really fun hang as well. And, um, and, you know, it's like almost like I hit the trifecta in a, in a lot of ways for a lot of the time, you know, the trifecta of money, music and the hang it's like you can have two but you can never have three (laughs) (laughs) have you heard that before i mean that's a pretty standard thing right like this gig may be the closest i've ever come to to being content on all three of those levels you know and so i think you know what i've really come to realize over the last year is that i'm kind of more of a gypsy than anything else like i you know i'm staying in nashville you know, whenever I can and hanging out with people there and trying to meet new people. But, you know, I'm also, you know, quite happy back in the Dallas area. You know, I love Austin. So sometimes I go down there for a little while and, you know, you know, it's all part of a puzzle, you know, it's all like this gig is part of, you know, what I'm doing and it doesn't need to not be a part of that right now. You know, cause man, I talked to so many guys in Nashville who are, you really, really struggling, you know, yeah. but like I was saying at the beginning, it kind of just feels like a journey, you know, it wasn't what we, uh, uh, you know, originally set out to document, uh-huh. but I think what we documented was like how life really works, yes. and, you know, yeah, you know, so I feel really good about it. I, I'm not trying to make it seem like a downer or anything at all. No, like I'm, right. I'm, I feel great about it. And, you know, I'm going to continue to, you know, be in Nashville whenever possible. And, you know, continue to, I mean, gosh, my mailing address is, is in Nashville. I mean, most of the time, you know, like I'm picking up mail like once a month or so, <laughs> but you know, the thing, you know, the thing with the Rev, you know, with Reverend Horton Heat that we've talked about is the band is on the road so much. Gosh, I mean, like for the first eight months of this year going through August, like we will have been on the road for five months of those eight. So it's like I don't really live. I live on the. I live in our tour bus. Really, I think that documenting this real thing that has happened to you, I see as a very successful experiment, and the response has been good. And I think that shedding some light on the reality of what you think is the plan, and then life tells you what the plan is. You've come away from this, you've come away with more friends, um, more contacts, more, uh, a better understanding of the industry and where you fit into it. 
And uh, I think that gives you peace of mind. And again, mm-hmm. like you say, this is where you're at now. And Nashville's not going anywhere, my friend. And if something right. changes uh, in the next tomorrow, man, it's like you've already laid some groundwork. And I'm, I'm happy for you. And I thank you for sharing this, uh, some personal stuff with us, you know, for sure to kind of give us some insight on that. Yeah, you're very welcome, man. I mean, it's, you know, thank you for the opportunity. It's been, it's, it's been really fun. And in a way it's kind of like kept me, um, you know, the, the documenting of what, you know, I've been up to, I think has been really helpful also to me for like, uh, you know, gaining some insight and helping me reflect a little bit on what's happening. But man, I can't thank I can't thank you enough for you know throwing this idea out to me and you know and and us going through on it and yeah. it's been fun too. It's been yeah, fun to talk to you and stay in touch. I gained I gained a new a new friend in you. Oh, that's <laughs> I hope man. you feel that way about me. <laughs> I do, I do, man, I do for sure. I, and there's a couple things you know about like why you were the person that we wanted to do this for because you, well you were making the move, but also it's like well, dude, here's a great guy. Here's a great player. Um, I think oh, this, thanks, no matter man. what happens, there's going to be something, uh, there's going to be a takeaway for all of us. For sure. Yeah, for man. sure, man. Thank you again, Matt. I can't thank you enough, brother. Hey, thank you, man. We'll keep in touch, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Take all care. Right. All right, see you, man. Bye. Bye-bye. So there you go. Thanks so much, Arjuna, for sharing a lot of uh, your time and personal stories with us. It's been an amazing journey over this last year, and I hope we get a chance to do it again with uh, another drummer sometime down the road. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. He's got Atlanta drummer Larry Wilson on the docket, so check that out. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.